home. Glad that you're here with us. My name's Dave, one of the pastors. Now we get to take a look at the Bible, and that's always exciting. And if you're new to this whole church experience, or maybe you came from a different tradition, what we do here every week is we open up this book called the Bible. We believe it's God's word given to us so that we might orient our lives around the truths that we find in it, but we need God's help. And so if you would, let's just pray and ask him to open our eyes, ears, and hearts, and minds to what he's got for us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this community that we're able to gather in a number of ways this morning in person and virtually, God. We ask that by your spirit that you'd send it to connect us one to another, that we might truly know that we're part of a family, that we are not alone, that we are not isolated, that we do have brothers, sisters, young and old who are part of our new family in Christ, and that, that through your work on the cross and the resurrection that we can have life in that family. And so we just pray, God, that you'd give us that great, mysterious understanding of the family that we're now, to, now a part of, that like a family meal, we've come together this morning to eat and to be filled and to grow strong through your word. And so would you give us ears to hear? Would you illuminate our, eye, our minds and our hearts so that we might truly know who you are and what you have done and are doing for us even right now? So be with us this morning as we learn and consider your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and by his spirit. Amen. Amen. So if you've got a copy of the scriptures, go ahead and grab it. Turn to Exodus chapter 1. Last week we did an introduction to Exodus, and I can't recap the whole thing even though I want to. It's a really important introduction. Exodus is a very long book. We'll be in it for over six months. So if you haven't seen the introduction to Exodus, uh, not right now, but <laughs> later today or sometime this week, I highly encourage you to go listen to that introduction. It'll give you the overall arc of the book of Exodus. And so we talked about a couple things last week. The Exodus is all about freedom from, but not just freedom from, it's freedom for something else. And so we talked about, this is sort of the sub-theme of Exodus, God moves us out so that he can move us in, okay? So he moves us out of one thing, and, and we see this all over scripture, and it starts first and foremost here with Exodus so that he can move us in to something else. And in between the moving out and the moving in, what we see always is wilderness. And so we're going to watch the people of God as they are moved out of slavery in Egypt. We're going to watch God do that. But he's not just moving them out or freedom from slavery. He's also giving them freedom for something else. And last week we talked about those two things that he's moving out of bondage. And he does that even for us into not freedom, but worship. We don't just move out of bondage into freedom. We move out of bondage into worship. We change who our master is. God is now our Lord and master, and we look to him, and we serve him. And so, man, we'll, we'll touch on all those themes throughout this whole series, so we'll come back to them again and again, which is why if you didn't get a chance to see last week, go check that out so that you can kind of see these themes bubble up in each and every micro-encounter, mini-encounter that we'll go through. We're going to go through a few of them today. And so we got a lot of work to do. So today, what, what hopefully we will learn a little more about is, one, that things happen to people and nations who forget what God has done in the past. Number two, we'll learn that God will use simple people, average people, normal, everyday people, even slaves, to frustrate evil and the sinful plans of powerful people. And the three will learn that we usually have no idea what God is doing. We're usually like completely in the dark. That's why we read the word of God, because he has patterns to how he acts, but usually we don't know exactly what he's up to. That's why followers of Jesus Christ are what the Old Testament might call God-fearers. So that's the Old Te Testament language. We'll see that today. In, in our language, we might say persons of faith, right? Because faith is continuing to move even when you can't see exactly where it's leading. And so to be a follower of Jesus means that you're a person of faith. 
and we'll talk more about that today. So hopefully we get to all three of those things, and we're going to unpack three pretty big, important, each of these could be their own sermon, but I've packed them in because that's what Pastor Dave does, he packs it in. So here we go. So let's begin to unpack Exodus chapter 1. Verse 1. We'll have it up on the screen for you. If you're here in person, it should be on the live stream. Or I'd really highly, if you've got a Bible, open it up. You could also Google it, whatever is the easiest thing to do. But we've got a lot of text. Sometimes it's easier to read along with us, okay? So here we go. I'm going to read one. We're going to kind of read them in chunks and then talk a little bit about them. One, Exodus 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, all of the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew, grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, you might feel like you've just sort of jumped into a story, and you have. And we talked about last week, and Claire, oh, Claire, she did such a fantastic job, didn't she? Um, telling us, giving a summary in less than four minutes, that was her charge, in less than four minutes, a summary of the book of Exodus. And what you see in Exodus is God creating all things. Claire, would you come up? Okay, no. Creating all things, and, uh, and then Things go wrong, and then he decides he's going to save the world, starting with one family. And this is the family that we have recounted here. Uh, the sons of Jacob come to Egypt in a time of drought and famine where they were living, and they come to Egypt and are saved because some of the brothers, there's 12 brothers, uh, most of the brothers sold the youngest brother, Joseph, into slavery because they didn't like him, and he was pretty cool, and so they, they tried to get rid of him. God ends up using that sin and evil to let Joseph become a royal advisor and not only save the people of Egypt from a famine, but also then his whole family. And we see here 70 persons. They come and establish themselves in Egypt. They're saved from the famine because of the work of Joseph. I can't go through it all, but that's basically... Exodus is starting with these verses to say... Okay, remember where we left off in Genesis. So to understand Exodus, you have to understand that it's really one book in a book of five. It's called the Pentateuch, or the Torah, is, is what this five books is about. Primary authorship is Moses, and he's writing this after all the things they've gone on to tell people what has happened. And so we've jumped in, maybe think of it like um, Star Wars, right? It's one big story, but... If you just jump in the middle, you might not know exactly what's going on. So you got to understand Genesis. We get here, and this is the transition text from Genesis to Exodus, and we talked a little bit about that last week. But the thing you need to know, it went from 70 people when Joseph dies at the end of Genesis, and now the nation has grown. They have found life. They've multiplied. They've become hundreds of thousands of people in this foreign land this isn't the land God promised to them, but he's continued to bless them even when they're not yet into their promises. So again, a type of wilderness, but God is still blessing them in the wilderness, okay? So that's 1, 1 through 7. And there's all these echoes of Genesis. When God creates, he says, be fruitful and multiply. And so you see the word right here. They multiplied, meaning they continued to do what God had asked them to do, even though they weren't fully into the promise. So, let's transition now. This is where we're at. We have a growing nation within a nation, a people group, known as the Hebrews. You'll see that word used, the Hebrews. They're also the Israelites. And so, one of the ways to understand, the he Hebrew is actually a more general term, and Israelite would be a more specific term. So let's say that you're traveling, uh, you're traveling to uh, Indonesia, and somebody asks you, where are you from? Okay? The most specific thing to say would be, I'm a Washingtonian, right? That's very specific. That would be like saying, I'm an Israelite. But if you're smart and you care about people, you'll you realize they probably don't know what that is. You'd say, I'm an American. 
That's like saying, I'm a Hebrew. And so Hebrew was the term that the Egyptians would recognize as not Egyptian from a land in, uh, in the Semitic people, and they've come over. And so you'll see those words. Um, you'll see that Moses, in writing, uses both words to describe, but he uses typically Hebrew when he's talking uh, amongst the Egyptians, okay? Just to help you understand what's going on there. So, verse 8 Now there arose a new king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. So hundreds of years have passed, and the Egyptian royal class has forgotten about Joseph, the one who, because of this God who helped him interpret dreams and gave him great wisdom, helped save the people of Egypt from this great famine. But they've forgotten about him. So what happens when they forget? Verse 9. And he, that's the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pythium, and Ramesses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter and with hard service, in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves." So, what's going on here? The king of Egypt, the pharaoh, says, he looks out and he sees, wow, this people group within our country is growing and multiplying, and they're getting to the point where if we don't oppress them, they they could rise up, create a revolution. And if war breaks out, they'll have as many fighting men as, as we do, and we don't want that to happen. So, let's deal shrewdly. Meaning, let's begin a campaign of cruelty, oppression, terror, racism, and we will make them bend the knee. We will weaken them. This is, and we'll see it even gets worse. This is, we can't just skim over this, okay? This is horrific. But this is what the evil world does. This is what the world does when they forget about God and they forget about what God's done. Even if they don't themselves worship this God, the the generations before this Pharaoh remembered this Joseph and what he had done and what he was doing in the name of his God. And so they had respect. But once they forgot Once they forgot that vital connection, once they forgot who these people were, things change. On the eve of Martin Luther King Day, it's good to remember that this is always the case. I was just thinking about that this week. I mean, this nation was founded on who? Religious pilgrims who left their land because they needed freedom from what they thought to be an oppressive government that wasn't letting them worship the way they desired. They came to have freedom for worship. And whatever else happened, we know that that was one of the roots of this nation. Our moral base, our moral foundation. But at some point we forgot. And we fall into these same traps as a nation. We oppress. We enslave. We dehumanize. We begin to teach people things about an ethnic group in order to control and ease our own conscience. And we'll see that's nothing new when you forget about the God and what he is like and what he is for. You will always fall into these same patterns. This is what evil and sin create in every world and every government where God is forgotten.
Let's never forget that. Now, it only gets worse. Look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives. You know what midwives are? They help people have children. Again, remember what's going on here. Twice now we've seen they multiplied, they multiplied, and then Pharaoh says, we need to help, we need to make them stop multiplying. So what do we do? He calls in the Hebrew midwives. He says, one of them whose name was Shifra and the other Pua. When you serve as, mid- as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded. But let the, they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the male children live? The midwives said to the Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew, <laughs> this is great. You've got to read this very closely. This is what the midwife said. They said, um, Mr. Pharaoh, great Pharaoh God, all this stuff. Pharaoh was very powerful. The people worshipped him as a god. Not these Hebrew midwives. They come in and they say this. Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. See what she's saying? She's like, we can't get there in time. By the time we get there, the birth is already over. We can't sneak in and take care of your business. So God uh, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied, there's that word again, and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Now, a couple of notes here. Um, most, most people think that you got into the profession of midwifery because you weren't able to have a family of your own. This gave you time to go at any hour of the day and go help with births. And so uh, this blessing that God bestows upon these Hebrew midwives because they were faithful and they feared God, it's very important here. This would have been a complete reversal. Their story would have changed. They never probably thought they'd get to have a family of their own. And God blesses them because of, it's very clear, their faithfulness for fearing him over and above this Egyptian god, the Pharaoh. Now the other thing to, to note here is that the personal names of Shifra and Pua are used. Who, who are these women? Well, they're incredible women. Notice whose name, and you'll never see it in the book of Exodus, whose name you never see. Well, which Pharaoh? And historian, which Pharaoh was this? The historians have struggled to determine which Pharaoh are we talking about because Moses never writes their name. Whose name does he write? Shifra and Pua. Slave women who were midwives. And it's incredible that here in front of us we have at the very beginning of the story of God these two amazing women who feared God and obeyed God rather than man. And so sometimes the Bible is depicted as a patriarchal document. I just want to point out that in the, in, in the first two chapters what we'll see is five women that are highlighted as the heroes that kick off the salvation of God's people. Right here we have two, Shifra and Pua, these midwives. And it's incredible how God uses what would otherwise be disregarded as second-class citizens or third, fourth-class citizens and uses them and elevates them and lifts them up as the heroes of the story. It's fascinating. It reminds me of what Jesus does in, what, in uh, Matthew 26. Jesus does the same thing. He says this. There's a woman right before Jesus goes to the cross who anoints him with sweet perfume and oil and and cleans his feet and and all these people come around and say, what are you doing that's so expensive? Why are you wasting all that oil? Jesus says, she's not wasting. She knows exactly what she's doing. She's the only one that sees it properly. She's the only one that sees that she's anointing a king for her service. And Jesus says this in chapter 26 of the Gospel of Matthew. Truly I say to you, whenever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Was Jesus right? Sure is. We're talking about her. That was Mary. Unbelievable. Shifra and Pua, Hebrew midwives, slave women, are being talked about in 2021 in Seattle, Washington, because of their faithfulness. Don't ever forget about that. 
Now, Shifra and Pua are Hebrews, and they're in charge of what, what I think, they're not the only two Hebrews uh, or midwives serving all the Israelite women in the land of Egypt. They're probably these high-ranking sort of senior midwives. And so whether or not Pharaoh actually calls them in or this is something that he's written to them, I think maybe it, make, it makes most, most sense to think about. They probably got this order uh, from the Pharaoh written, here's my edict, I want you to go take care of all these Hebrew males when they're born. And I think the second account, though, Pharaoh calls them in. <laughs> it says, explain to me why this hasn't happened. And you've got to understand, there's probably quite some time gap in between the first and the second. We read it here in the narrative, but how would Pharaoh have known that they were disposing of taking care of these Hebrew males? Well, he probably would have seen, uh, by now, shouldn't, shouldn't my order, my command to take care of the males be playing itself out? And that would probably would have taken a few years, primarily because girls and boys back then wore the same types of clothes. If you've ever seen kids that are young, their hair grows at the same rate, and so it takes a while to start to see the difference between boy and girl. And so then reports would coming back to them and saying, hey, there's just as many males as there are females in these slave communities. And Pharaoh's like, what? I told those midwives to take care of that. And of course, he gets frustrated. That's when he brings them in. Now, Another interesting note here is uh, Pharaoh says, when you see the, the women on the birth stool, if it's a son, kill them. Now, it's a terrible translation. Actually, in the Hebrew, what this means is when you see them, and then it says, and the two stones, <laughs> okay, <laughs> if it's a son, take care of them, and if it's a, a girl, let them live. So probably, really, the better translation is, when you see their genitalia, if they got the two stones, take care of them. If they don't, let them live. We've sort of washed away that. But it's, it's completely debased and evil. And I think what, you said, how would this have happened? No, no right mo mother in her mind would allow this to happen, right? You know the term mama bear? This is like when ordinary, sane, uh, calm women see their children in danger and they turn absolutely insane. <laughs> they, they turn violent. They can kill very easily. Why wouldn't this have happened if these midwives were trying to kill their children? Well, probably what part of the command to the midwives are because if you've also been in a labor room, which I have, the mother is pretty out of it, and the midwife would then take the baby, okay, and prepare the baby then to give back to the mother. Probably what the order was is, hey, when, when the wives are in hysteria, secretly take them, maybe smother the child, kill the child, and then bring the child back to the mother and say the baby didn't make it which was way more common back then than it was here. And so all of this was to be a very secretive plan of how to conduct genocide and population control within the Hebrew community. Incredibly sinful, incredibly evil. You have, you have to see that. And he's trying, the Pharaoh's trying to do it completely in the dark by, by invoking his power by manipulating these women and with the fear for their own lives, telling them to conduct this secret genocide. And they'll have none of it because what? They fear God more than they fear Pharaoh. This is so important. So it says that their God fears. It says it twice. And what does that mean? It doesn't necessarily mean that they, were, they knew exactly the scriptures. They didn't have the scriptures like we do. But they knew about their God they knew what he was like, they knew his character, and they knew this command to secretly kill their own people's children and claim it was a natural act is completely against the character of this God. And they, being honest, faithful, trustworthy, upright people, were not more afraid of losing their own lives than they were of disobeying their God. That's what it means to be a God-fearer. It doesn't mean that you're afraid of God. It means that 
you believe that the consequences of disobeying God are far more serious than the consequences of disobeying man. And they would have had to believe here, which is why they say what they say to Pharaoh, that disobeying Pharaoh very well would lead to the loss of their own lives. In fact, they were probably very surprised that when they came into Pharaoh and said, hey, this is actually what happened, that Pharaoh believed them. They probably thought, this is the end of our lives, but at least for the last three years, we have not been carrying out his order for systematic genocide in our country amidst our people. They were God-fearers. Now, think of this, the eternality of being a God-fearer, right? So at some level, these women knew that what man could do to the body, now God could do to the soul and the body forever, some level, they understood this. It was written on their heart. They'd learn it in, in the teachings of their people because they are the people of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They understood, just as Jesus said, that we should fear the one that can kill the soul, not the one that can kill the body. So this gives us a clinic then. I really think it does on how to obey God's law instead of man's law when the two are in contradiction. The Bible also tells us as long as they're not in contradiction, try to be respectful and follow the laws of the land. But when they come into conflict, you should use great wisdom and discernment and obey God's law over and above. And really what they're doing here, and you've got to picture yourself in this room with Pharaoh, is they're frustrating and subverting evil and sin. So they're subverting evil. They're saying, what well, you're trying to do evil, we are not going to participate in that. And we are going to actively actually work against that so that evil is not played out. They don't just say to Pharaoh, we will not do that. They say, sure, we'll take care of it. And then they just don't do it for three years. Until Pharaoh says, why are all these Egyptian, or Hebrew males running around? I, to- I told these people to take care of it. So... They frustrate sin in a broken world. And this is what we're called to do. To frustrate sin in our broken world. Wherever we see it. Now how do they do it? How do they frustrate this sin? A couple of things to note. Well, they first rise to places of prominence in their society. It's good for God-fearers to work their way up the systems that be so that they have positions of power like Shifra and Pua, and then they can exert their influence and frustrate the sin of a system. It's a great strategy. These were probably older women who had worked their way up to be the senior midwives for the whole land of Egypt. Fascinating, amazing women worked their way up to places of prominence so that they might subvert the evil system. Notice that they can't and don't try to just overthrow the government because that's never God's answer in the Bible. Never. You never see God telling people to overthrow the government in which they live. He might move them out of that to start something new and better and different, but it's never. Jesus never calls upon the people to be zealots and take over Israel and Get rid of the Romans. That's what they thought he would do, the Messiah, when he came. But that's not what he does. He subverts sin and evil. So they do it with great (laughs) shrewdness. You see, Pharaoh's trying to be shrewd, but the Egyptian or the Hebrew midwives are just way more shrewd than they are, than he is. And it frustrates and embarrasses. And you should read this as ironic that what he was trying to do could be undone by Shifra and Pua. Amazing. They don't combat, and we should not combat, violence with violence, evil with evil. Martin Luther King taught us that. That's not the way of the God-fearers. So how did they do it? This is my conjecture, so I'll just step away from the Bible here because the Bible doesn't tell us. This is what I think probably happened. Shifra and Pua get this order to secretly kill these babies before the mother knows so that they think that the baby died in childbirth. And here's what they go back and they have their meeting with all the other midwives and they say, listen, this is what Pharaoh has ordered. 
and I hope it's obvious to everyone, we are not going to do this. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to show up to work late every single day for the next three years. Just show up late. <laughs> just sleep in. Don't set your alarm. Whatever you got to do, just show up to work late so that when you get there, when you get there, the babies have already been born. They're already with their mother. And, and again, the system of, or, or the community structure of the Israelites would have been such that they had other helpers, family and friends. That It wasn't ideal. The midwives have special skills. But I think Shifra and Puah said, just show up late to work. Till it's almost over so that, that we don't have to do what Pharaoh said. I think that's what happened. I think that's how shrewd. And so it's not necessarily that they are lying. This is a big debate. Is God celebrating these women for lying? That doesn't seem. One of the Ten Commandments is not to lie or give false testimony. I don't think that's what hap- is happening here. I think they're just so clever that they figured out a way that they could keep Pharaoh's orders and not be successful. I don't know what that would look like in your job to, to, to not be successful in an evil command of your boss or of your land, but we should do that. And we should find all sorts of ways to frustrate evil even when the laws and systems of our country perpetuate sin and evil. So how are you going to frustrate sin and evil? How are we going to use whatever agency you have to work against things that lead to death rather than life? That's what Shifra and Puh teach us. Figure out a way to do that without committing evil, without violence. How can you frustrate sin and evil so that the things that that the society and the culture want to perpetuate and multiply actually are not perpetuated and multiplied, but the things of God are perpetuated and multiplied, even if the law of the land is not in accord with God's law? you got to ask yourselves those questions. I will say this. Today at 12.30, we're going to have a Q&A session. Every, every, every Sunday after the sermon, one hour after, we're going to have a Q&A session so that we can unpack some of this stuff more because there's so much stuff in, the, in these pages of Exodus. We want to give a space. So you can jump on that Zoom call if you're watching online. Uh, the link is in the description of the video, or you can find the email that we sent out to. So if you're watching here in person, you could go find the video from today. There's a link to the Zoom call if you're not already on our contact list. So we'll have time to unpack more. We can even talk about ways we might apply frustrating sin and evil in our world today, but doing it God's way rather than man's way. So let's keep going. Like I said, a lot to get to today. So we get to this. Pharaoh is frustrated. For years he's been thinking that these women who he's given this order to have mobilized his plan and that his his evil genocide is working, and then he realizes it's not working. The numbers are in. There's just as many men as there were before his edict. He's saying, I failed. And, and he says, you know what? I will, not be, I will not be beat out. So he brings the women in. They tell him this sort of half-truth, and, and uh, they, they come out of it with their lives. And not only that, God protects them there. He gives them a family. But Pharaoh doesn't stop. Evil never stops. It always keeps going, Okay. So look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, his people. He's no longer going through the middle women, no longer going through the Hebrews. Can't trust the Hebrews to, to execute his plan. Again, he's building up in his mind that you can't trust the Hebrews. They're against him. They're going to they're overthrow him. And so he says, I'm going to call all the people, all the Egyptians, and I'm going to give them The edict, which says this, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile River, but you shall let every daughter live. You know what? I will not be denied. No longer am I going to do it in secret through the Hebrew midwives. I'm not going to do it out of sight, out of mind. I'm going to now just publicly say the Hebrews are evil. We hate the Hebrews. They're out to get us. We're going to take them down. All of us Egyptians together, we've got to... Kill every firstborn. This is crazy. But this is not the first time that this has happened. You don't even have to go back 100 years to see this happen. And you can't help but think of something like the book of Anne Frank. Being hid away from the Nazis. Living this life of anxiety and isolation. Just trying not to be found out. It's not distant past 
This always happens. When sin is frustrated, it will double down and it will seek its own power and its own ends. And we see it right here. All the people. And you can just imagine the propaganda machine that was going to convince people that they should participate in this mass killing of all Hebrew babies. Like, how are you going to convince somebody to, to turn in their neighbor if you're in Germany in the early 20th century? You've got to lie to them. You've got to build up a series of lies that helps them get over the fact that these are human beings. Same thing's happening in Egypt. One of the things that I think happened, and, and this is really important to understand, the Nile River was and is one of the largest rivers in the world, and everything happened along the Nile River. All the civilization was along the Nile River because the, the river would flood. This is how the fields would be watered, and so everyone lived along the river. So it wasn't a long way to get to the river or some of the offshoots of the Nile River to enact this Pharaoh's command. And the Nile River was worshipped like a god. In fact, there was a god of the Nile. So I think part of, again, this is conjecture, but part of the propaganda machine going out was Pharaoh said, listen, we've got to take care of these Hebrews. They're, they're not for us. They're against us. And I know it might seem horrific and terrible for you to do this, but I want you to take, if, you know, take or tell us, and we'll throw them in the Nile for you, if you hear a newborn baby and, and you find out it's a boy. And listen, we trust the gods, and we trust the god of the Nile River. And if the god of the Nile River wants to keep them alive, that's on his hands. The blood of those children, that ain't on your hands. Your hands are clean. You're just following the Pharaoh's orders. And so cast the children into the river. If they don't make it, the gods have spoken. If they do make it, great. I bet that was part of the propaganda. You see, religion can always be used against God's purposes if it's a false religion. That's why God gives us his word to say, that's not the kind of God I am. So what happens next? Now we come to the birth of Moses. Moses is the most famous prophet for, still today, the Hebrew people. He as we read along in this book, will end up saving his people from slavery and leading them out into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. So this is not really a spoiler alert because when this was written, it was written to a people who had been led out by Moses, so he's just telling them how this actually happened. So here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1 says this. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. Now here's what's important. You don't know this yet in the story, but again, this was written when the Levites were the tribe, because there was 12 sons. They were the tribe of the Levites who became the priestly spiritual uh, leaders in the land of Israel. So Moses is saying, I was born to Levites. This is why part of why the Levites are this clergy class within the nation of Israel. So, my mother was a Levi, my father was a Levi. Verse 2, the woman, that's my mother, conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, not just good looking, but gave delight to her heart. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Pretty obvious. Because she's living in a time where the edict is out that if anybody hears of a Hebrew male being born, you either report them or you take care of it yourself. And so she has to hide her newborn child. Very challenging for those of you who have, have uh, newborns to keep your child <laughs> quiet for three months. And so they work hard, and the whole family, as we'll see, is in on it trying to hide from neighbors and friends that they had given birth to a son. Verse 3, when she could hide him no longer, she took him, or she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and dabbed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. By the river bank. Now, let's pause there real quick. 
This is all happening very fast in the narrative, but she's probably been thinking for months, what am I going to do when I can no longer hide this child? And she's prepared for him this basket. And this basket is like an ark. In fact, it's not pulled out here in the English translation, but the word here for basket is the same word that's used in the book of Genesis to talk about the ark that Noah builds to save his family and all the animals. And so Moses, when writing this, is clearly wanting us to think that his mother builds him an ark to save her child and ultimately to save God's people. So she builds him this basket, and and my guess is this basket's ready to go in case she hears of a raid coming because somebody has sold them out and told them that they're hiding a child. And she puts the child in it and places it in the reeds of the riverbank. You need to tap in here for a sec and not read this from 30,000 feet. This is a real story. This actually happened. And Moses' mother had to stand waiting in the water with a basket in her hands. And she had to choose to let it go. She would have given anything. She would have traded her life. But Pharaoh didn't want her life. He wanted to stamp out and reduce and minimize the people of Israel through killing all male children. She's asking, God, what do I do? How do I do this? This can't be. I don't understand your plan. Why are you allowing this to happen to our people? I thought you were a good God. Why would you allow this to keep going? Why do, you ha- why do I have to release the basket? Why can't you bring the Savior now? Why, why can't you, God? But she lets go of the basket. Moses' mother was a God-fearing woman. And God gave her the strength gave her the faith to trust him and let the basket go. Now what happens next? Verse 4. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. (laughs) This is like a tiny little verse, and it made me cry this week. Because I have an older sister. You guys know my story, most of you. My sister Kim was incredibly protective of me. And his sister, who will come to find out, is Miriam, who's famous in her own right, is given a name that everyone remembers. Miriam becomes a great leader in the desert amongst the people. And here, right here, her younger brother is born, and mom sends her to watch. I I love a couple parts of this. First, even just the building of the ark. and, And the ark wouldn't have been like an open basket And we'll see that because when the princess, spoiler alert, finds the basket, she has to open it. So it's like covered up pretty good, and it's got tar all over it, as we just read, and so it's pretty waterproof. And so there's all sorts of things that the mom's doing, saying like, I trust God, but I'm also going to give my son the best chance to make it as far down the river as he can. Maybe somebody will find him. And I'm going to send his sister to wade amongst the weeds. I know that's dangerous for her to do that, but I'm going to do it just in case, and as we'll see the just-in-case happens. So this is a faith that still to let go took incredible faith, but it's not a blind faith. It's a calculated, thoughtful, I'm going to be there in case God needs to use me, Miriam says. And look what happens. Verse 5. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside in the river. So the princess, Pharaoh's daughter, and we don't know how many daughters he had, probably had a, a whole harem Uh, Many wives, this was common in this day, and so he could have had many, many daughters. So we don't know how many daughters he had, but one of his daughters is down bathing in the river. Again, shows you, if you're royal, you could probably have them draw a clean bath for you, but the Nile was seen as this very spiritual place. So she's down bathing in the Nile River while her maidservants uh, walk beside her, and she sees the basket among the reeds, and she sent her servant woman And the servant woman took it, verse 6, when she opened it, that idea that it was a covered basket, it wasn't just Moses sunbathing on his float down the river, uh, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And look at what it says next. So she, that's the princess, took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, 
She probably knows it's a Hebrew by the way the baby's dressed, by the fact that not a lot of Egyptian women are probably floating their children down, so she understands why this would happen. And she has great compassion. Great compassion. She's not like her father. She has great compassion. And God will use a non-Israelite to help save a slave. And she opens the basket, and she sees that the baby's crying. And, and, and I don't think she has pity on the child or compassion on the child because the child's crying. That's the way it's sort of written. But if you've, if you've been in the, in the labor room and you, you, you've seen a child come out like I have, you understand the sweet joy of a cry. To, to those of you who haven't had kids, one day I hope you have the experience of, of hearing a child cry for the first time. My son Owen, my second-born son, he was born very fast, and when he came out, he didn't cry for 30 to 40 seconds. And uh, the midwives, the nurses, rushed him away. And Allie and I sat there, and we couldn't hear him cry for 30 seconds. It felt like a lifetime. And then 30, 40 seconds in, we hear the sweetest, most beautiful wail we've ever heard. He's alive. And we just broke down weeping. Now, we, we don't now get as excited about his crying. <laughs> but then his cry was a sign of life. And I think that's what's going on here. I think she opens the basket. She knows what's going on. It's probably not maybe the first basket that's ever been floated down the river. And she opens it, and the baby's crying. And she says, the baby's alive. And what she's probably thinking, because she's maybe heard the propaganda, that the, the gods of the Nile will keep alive those who deserve to live. She's probably thinking, the gods have spoken. This child, even though he's a Hebrew, is meant to live. And as we'll see, she adopts the child. So what God meant for sin, or sorry, what Pharaoh meant for sin, God meant for good, and uses the sinfulness of Pharaoh to move a Hebrew into the royal family. See the irony? You see that? Pharaoh thought he was getting rid and, and taking power away and, and protecting his throne, and God chooses to move a Hebrew into his family without him knowing it. We have no idea what God's up to. And when you think you're acting against him, you may very well be acting for him. It's a beautiful, beautiful irony of the gospel. So she took pity on him. This is one of the Hebrew children, verse 7. Then his sister, who shrewdly was waiting nearby, listening, watching what's happening, his sister pipes up, hey, 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 it's me over here. The princess says, come over. She says, she says um, uh, Mrs. Uh, Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call for you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? No bottles back in the day, so... Probably for the first two or three years of a life, you got to have somebody breastfeeding. So we need a wet nurse. And so Miriam doesn't say who she is. She just says, hey, would you like, I know, I know everybody in the Hebrew community. I'll go, I can go find a wet nurse for you to, we, to get this child up to uh, the proper age so you can fully adopt him. It's <laughs> basically what she's saying. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go, yes, go. So the girl went, Miriam goes and calls the child's mother goes back to her house and says, Mom, you won't believe it. Moses got picked up by the Pharaoh's daughter. Now imagine the emotions that are going on in uh, Moses' mother's mind. Wait, the Egyptians have him? God, how could you let the Egyptians get him? But then Miriam says, no, 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 Mom. Come with me, come with me. She needs a wet nurse. She's going to adopt him but needs somebody to nurse him. Come, Mom. We won't even tell her that you're his mother. So she goes, and she gets to raise, probably to about the age of three, her son Moses. Oh, the blessings of God. When she released that basket in the water, there's no way she could have known this is how it was going to go. But she trusted God. So she brought her, Moses' mother, to Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. <laughs> God says, trust me. She lets him go. 
He's going to end up getting raised with a royal education in the royal house, and yet his mother gets to nurse him for the first three years of his life. It would be terribly sad when she had to give him up. But she got three years with him. And not only that, the irony here, she gets paid. She gets paid to nurse her own son. And mothers everywhere said, why not me? You know what I'm talking about, Megan. <laughs> it's like, why don't I get paid to do this? This is hard work. She gets paid. God blesses her in so many ways. And verse 10, so when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he, that's Moses, became the princess's son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. And so Moses' name literally in the Hebrew means to draw out. And it was, but it was also very close to a common Egyptian name. So here's this young man who's, you know, in one, in a, one way uh, Egyptian and another way uh, obviously fully Hebrew, a Levite of Levites, and God has prepared him for this very unpredictable plan to rescue his people. And only if God told us that this is what he was doing would we, would we even believe it. It's just an incredible plan, something we could never predict, something we could never come up with on our own. But God is working. He's moving. He's preparing a way for his people. He's frustrating the sin of Pharaoh and actually using his sin to move in the rescuer to his own house where he'll be hidden but educated and given all the resources of the mightiest empire at that time. God is doing something. He uses adoption. He uses all sorts of things to save his people. There's so many things in here. I hope you'll join us for the Q&A. There's so many things to say. You see this amazing faith of, of these five women, one of whom is not even a worshiper of the God of Israel, but he uses them all to further his plans, to save his people. You know, the river's like a wilderness, isn't it? And, and Moses' mother is asked to send her child into the wilderness. And God moves Moses through the wilderness and into the royal house. I mean, all these themes come together in these early chapters of Exodus. But as we said, as we've said, the story of Exodus is our story. This is the story of all God's people. This is the story that we share the good news of the gospel. It's the same story. Because what does God do? If you don't know the gospel, the gospel is this. This same sin that infects Pharaoh's heart, this same rebellion against God, this same desire for selfish ends, this desire for power, the desire to be God, to be worshipped as God, all of that, don't think that's somebody else, that's in you. That rules in your heart. Whether you have the means or the power to execute your desire, without the saving work of God, your heart is Pharaoh's heart. And while you were in that state, God decided to move. He decided, God the Father, to stand in the river and release his son Jesus to float his way down to earth, metaphorically speaking, of course, to put on flesh and to live among us so that he might save us. And so the story that we celebrate and the reason we gather is that God released his own son so that the sinfulness of man might rebel against that son and nail that son to a Roman cross so that the sin that nailed him to the cross might be frustrated so that the devil's scheme to get him the son of God into the grave might be the way that God gets the rest of his people out of the grave. Do you see what I'm saying? God frustrates the sin of the world through the cross in that Jesus died for our sin in our place when the, sin, when the world and the devil thought they were getting rid of God's son. Because Jesus rose from the grave three days later. 
Talk about frustrating sin. Talk about frustrating evil. We thought we put him to death and he's still alive and his people are more filled with joy than ever. That's our story. That's the story of the cross. And we see the shadows of it all the way back in the Exodus. That this is the way God works. This is the way that he is restoring all things. It's not the way that we thought it would go. At every step, we're like, this can't be, God. This can't be what you're doing. But this is what he did. And when you choose to put your trust and faith in that God, he will then apply the blessings won for you by Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection. He'll apply that to your life. In some part of your life that you thought was dead, like the midwives, that you thought you'd never have this, God can give you that. He may do it in this life. He may do it in the life to come. He may do it in a way that you think, or he may do it in another way. But you must trust him. You must trust him. I could just talk for hours about this. Maybe I'll have to come back to it. Who'd have thunk? We thought it was over. When, Egypt, or, or when the Pharaoh stopped his evil, like keeping his evil plan in the dark and secret and brought it to the light and got the whole nation involved, we thought, now it's definitely over for the people of Israel. Pharaoh's hell-bent on it. And God says, not in my world. So um, I want to do a little exercise today during our last three songs. I've brought my own little ark it's actually a picnic basket. That's why there's wine glasses in it. <laughs> um, but this is a little arc here. Probably not totally different. It'd be covered with tar so that it was waterproof. And there's a lid. And so <sighs> Moses' mother, her name is Jochebed, by the way. We'll get to that later. She puts Mo- Moses in a basket and, and lays him in the river. But I thought maybe, maybe we need to just do a little spiritual exercise. What is it in your life that you can't understand why God has taken you to this place? Maybe it's in relationships. Maybe it's a desire to have a family. Maybe it's at work in your profession. Maybe you just feel so frustrated and you're wondering where God is and why isn't he working. He's told me he wants this for me. What is it for you? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set this, this basket just right here like this. If you're watching online, I want you to just visualize yourself coming up to this basket and placing that thing in the basket. What is the thing? When your feet are wet and you feel the Nile, I want you to try to experience that feeling. I, don't really, I, I, I can't really trust God with this. I've got to hold on to it. I've got to try to keep hiding this and controlling it myself. What is it that you need to put in the basket and just say, God, I trust you. With this thing in my life, I trust you. What is it? If you're here with us in person, I'd invite you over during our last music set. Is Again, we didn't pass stuff out because we want to keep this as much of a contactless experience as possible. But you can walk. I just would like you to walk by here and picture yourself walking through the water of the Nile River. And I want you to come and, and, and just set it in there. Whatever that thing is, just... Set it in there. Sometimes it's good to get your body moving with your mind and your heart. So if you're at home, you might walk towards the TV or the computer screen and just picture yourself setting it in the basket and saying, God, I trust you with this. However it turns out, we have no indication that Moses' mother knew anything about God's plan to be adopted, to, to have him adopted into the world. We have no... There's, Moses would have told us that if she had had a dream, there was an angel. There's plenty in Genesis of God speaking and angels coming. And Moses' mother had none of that. She just had to trust. She knew about this God. What is that thing? He might not tell you what the plan is. Will you give it to him? So you can do that if you're here. Walk up. Just you know, keep social distance, but come up. Drop it in during these worship songs. If you're at home, just walk towards your TV. Do that. What would that mean for you? So let's pray. Father God, 
we thank you for letting your son go. For sending the second person of the Holy Trinity to take on flesh, to join the human community in every possible way so that he might live the life that we never could, a perfect, pure life, always in obedience to you, never rebelling, so that when he came to the end of his life, he would be the perfect sacrifice. You gave him to us. You sent him to us. And he completed the work you had for him. And as he died on the cross and was separated from you, he took upon our sin. God, we, we don't know how to, to receive that gift. It just seems too great for us. Give us the faith to believe that that is what happened, that our rebellion, our sin, the evil that is in our heart, just like in Pharaoh's, can be taken away by the work of Jesus on the cross. We thank you. And God, we thank you that you brought him back to life. Three days you waited. Miriam, or uh, Moses' mother didn't even have to wait three days. She got to see the resurrection of her son just that day. God, would you just give us assurance that, that Jesus has in fact risen from the grave. That those that trust in you and obey you do come to new life. That they, that, that they aren't forever killed, but that you'll bring them back to life. Make that so true in our minds, God, that we can trust you even more. So I pray for my friends, God, wherever they're at, whatever that thing is that they need to just hand over to you, God, that you let them do that. And the freedom that that creates in them would be filled for worship. As they trust you, may they worship more. So we pray this and, and a million things right now. Hear the prayers of your people in Jesus' name. Amen.